I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Thrill Talk this week. I'm just so excited today because I have, listen, we've had a lot of guests on this show. Um, But I I can say, other than maybe my brother, uh, I probably am not closer to any other person that I've had on this show than our guest today. Uh, who's Alema Harrington? As a matter of fact, he is my brother. We, we spent <laughs> That's a lot true. of time. We I'm, your, a I'm your, your another brother. <laughs> yes, you are. Yes, sir. Yes, you are. <laughs> um, Alema Harrington. We will find out a lot about his journey because that's what the show's really about. Yeah. It's about the journey and it's about what people can can learn from us. Uh, you have a lot to teach today, my brother. Uh, just a little bit about Alema Harrington. Has been in the broadcast arena for many years. Started out in Hawaii, I believe, yeah. as a broadcaster, yeah. and then. Went to uh, BYU and did some BYU football yep. right here at KSL as yep. well. Yep. And now I have the privilege of uh, working with him uh, over at, at uh, the Vivint Smart Home Arena broadcasting pre-half and post for AT&T Sports. And uh, we're going to be getting together here really soon, yeah. Emma. We're coming up on, a, I think, a decade or so together. Yes, we are, man. You know, and... Um, you know, for for me driving in, man, what uh, it was kind of it was exciting because we we don't haven't had the opportunity to see each other Virtually. in person, right? Yeah. Virtually, we're on some calls like once a week with the broadcast team and, and whatnot. But um, you know, I I feel you know the the same when it comes to you and I being brothers and uh, and you, know, you spend so much time together. Yeah. I'm even um, starting to look like you. Look at my beard, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, I'll start to look like you. That would be better for me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> hey, but there's no question. Yeah. We've got the best dressed broadcast. Oh, I'm thinking in the country. Hands down. Maybe in the world. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's even the competition. It's not. It really yeah. isn't. It really isn't. <laughs> so it's so great to have you on yeah. the show today. And I, I got to be honest with you, Lemmer. Um for all of my other guests, even my brother, somewhat, I've asked him. I asked him for some things. Yeah, I did some research, and I do research on on my guests. But I, you know, I, I was I was really prompted today that I didn't need all that stuff. Yeah. I know you well enough, right? Yeah. And you and I have had some deep conversations off the air while yeah. we're waiting for halftime to be over or whatever. Um. But I feel this this kind of kindred spirit between you and I, not just because we work together, but because we share some things with each other that are yeah. important, right? Yeah. Um, you're a motivational speaker as well, and, and you're out there trying to help people. We're going to get deeper into your story and to your journey in a minute. But I want to start out. Yeah. There's, there's some things that are going on right now that uh, I want to get your thoughts <laughs> on. Uh, obviously, COVID-19 threw a wrench in the works for everybody yeah. in the world, probably. Um so I want to just get your thoughts on how it's kind of been for you through this process. I know 
things are peaking in some places yeah. again, as we thought that maybe they were calming down. But how have you handled this whole wave? You know, it's it, it's it's interesting, kind of cool in some ways, because you and I have a, a very personal um, uh, perspective on this, right? Because we were on the air. The, right. Our broadcast was, in, in some ways, what precipitated the entire league being shut down. Um, I, I, I get to have the pleasure of doing a, a weekly show on Ghostcast uh, with Craig Bowlerjack, the voice, play-by-play voice of the, the, the Jazz. And we talk about this fairly often on that particular program. Um, Rudy Gobert, Donovan Mitchell, uh, the diagnosis, mm-hmm. and, and everything that transpired at that moment, right? right? Um, and... Uh, you were with with Craig uh, on the road. I was with Mike Smith on our set back here in Salt Lake City. That's we right. toss out to you guys for the start of of the actual game broadcast. Um, our producers start to 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 freak out a little bit, and, and freak out might be a little too dramatic of a term, but but they start. No, I think wanting... you hit it on the head. You freaked out. <laughs> <laughs> They're trying to get us back. Myself and Mike back on the set, mic'd up and ready in case you guys were going to throw it back to us because there was, you know, some uncertainty as to where we were going. Right. And um, and I, I think for for listeners out there, they, they never get tired of hearing some of the behind the scenes things that happen. And and for you and, and Bowler and the rest of the team, uh, you guys had an inside look at at a lot of, you know, some leadership that, that you got from Quinn Snyder. Um, and uh, just going through what was a, a you know, I, I imagine from your perspective on your side, we were looking at uncertainty. You guys were looking at the possibility of being away from That's home right. in a quarantine situation for a minimum of 14 days. So, um, you know, I share that with with our listeners just as, as some perspective that you and I have on this that is going to be unique to you know, the majority of, of the people that are out there. But, you know, from that point on, and I've shared this before, where, you know, Mike Smith and I were walking to the parking lot from the arena, from Vivint. We go downstairs to the main floor, and we're walking out of the building and looking at each other going, like, what what just happened? You know, it, we were really, uh, you know, there was some concern for our 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 brothers that were you know our team including Kristen Kenny so yes. brothers and sisters that that were you know in the middle of this thing and we were thinking what's happening yeah you guys were thinking what just right? happened yeah and so we're we're and and Mike and I are walking out and and Mike lives in California so he's you know he would be flying back home for him I'm like is this it like are, yeah. are you know is the season done because at that moment. You know, Adam Silver had made the announcement that it was postponed. The team, the, the the season was suspended. Was the terminology? So from that point on, it, it uh, you know, for me, you know, all of us struggle with uncertainty. Like, like I don't know what's going to happen. And the the blessing I think for for me in dealing with it was. That the the life lessons that I've learned um, through my addiction recovery and mm-hmm. some of the work that I've I've done personally there is 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 being in full acceptance of not knowing. Gotcha. You know, and it's like um, being able to deal with that, and that doesn't mean I deal with that perfectly because I don't. You know, I get um, you know panicky, yeah. um, scared. 
Um, I can I can be driven by fear, um, but I had some tools to be able to say, you know, it's going to be okay. Whatever it is, it's going to be okay. The full acceptance of not yeah. knowing. That's powerful, man. Yeah. That's powerful. What you so, and, and part of it is like, you know, in the program, addiction recovery programs and the 12-step programs, whatnot, there is a, there is a, a focus on what would be, you know, uh, maybe referred to or, or um, uh, what we would call rigorous acceptance, mm-hmm. you know. And and acceptance is an interesting thing. It's like, well, I can kind of accept it. Well, you can't really kind of accept anything. You either do or you don't. Yeah. And if you and if you if you're in that that no man's land, that limbo land, um, you know, there there's very little that gets accomplished there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You can be in denial of it, uh, but the truth is the truth. Right. So, um, you know, for me, it's been uh, a matter of of trying to maintain that. And for you know, for me at that same time, to for 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 me personally in my in business, and you know, you and I both have business interests outside of the, of, right. of our work with the Utah Jazz, and I work in the addiction recovery business, and and uh, I'm a licensed counselor. Uh, I'm also you know uh, heavily involved in marketing efforts and community uh, advocate efforts. Um, with the disease of addiction, but I had just lost my job. I'd just been let go from Renaissance Ranch, and I had worked there for close to five years. Mm-hmm. And in, in some regards, was kind of the face of that brand, uh, Renaissance Ranch. And so, man, I was in, in a spot where I was like, wow, like I don't know what's going to happen with the jazz and, and how that's going to look. We all have contracts, that's but right. you know, this was uh, you know a, a circumstance that nobody had been able to predict. Um, and so there were concerns for all of us, like, oh, man, what's my jazz contract looking like? Um, and then on the other side, I had just lost uh, my position at Renaissance Ranch and was in the process of looking for work yeah. uh, in the addiction recovery industry, fortunate to to now be working in a place called Ardu down in Provo um, and loving the work that I, I get to do there. But, man, I was, uh, you know, I, I was in a state of fear and I you know I can rem- I can say this like I was given lip service to like oh it's going to be okay yeah. like you know um but in inside man I was I was scared yeah you know yeah um yeah. financial you know you know um and and just security yeah, for your family like, yeah. yeah so that's kind of you know and it's been that's been the process for this this whole time and I've been blessed fortunate to have um, support, yeah. Um, you're part of that support support system, T, um, and other guys that that are close to me in my my recovery, um, and and family that that are there to kind of help us to get through this. Yeah. And that's you know when we're talking about the journey. The journey is not done. It's that's not. Right. A, it, we don't do it alone. We don't. We right? don't. And you've touched on it quite a few times when you answered that question about addiction recovery. And we're going to get more into that. Yeah. But but I want to go, I want to go back because yeah. when I when I break down the journey, I really break it down into kind of four separate parts. The call, right? Yeah. The call is that moment. Maybe it's back when you were a kid, when you were growing a passion for something. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to know about. I want you to put me in a time machine and take me back to the island, yeah, right, and 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 how you grew up and where you grew up, and then. After the call is usually that that pit moment. You yeah. talked about some of that, yeah. right, that that you faced. We'll get into that, and then there's 
part of that is is that search that you're you're trying to get out of that pit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then maybe towards the end that breakthrough that you have, mm-hmm. right? And and kind of where you are today. So take me back. Yeah. Well, let me take me on that we'll time go back machine. Back to the islands, man. Let's, Let's jump go. in a, a double hull canoe. Hey, because you know, throw the sail up so we don't have to paddle the whole day, bro. <laughs> but it's <laughs> interesting. It's interesting because you and I are. I'm, I'm a little older than you yeah. are. Not, not much, much, though. Not no, much. Not much. I've got maybe. Uh, yeah. No, I, I can't say I have more miles because your journey <laughs> takes a lot of miles yeah. as well as mine, right? Yeah. But um, it's interesting because you and I, we start like singing a song on the set. We can yeah. finish each other's sentences yeah. about back in the day. <laughs> it's as if we grew up kind yeah. of in the same era in different places, but kind of in the same village yeah, in a way. It was so the same. Take me back yeah. to that time machine, man. What was uh, what was it like for Alema as a young kid? You know, growing up, up it, it you know, I was I've, I've been blessed to uh have uh, uh, a guy that that is my partner, right? And I call him my my partner from the womb. Uh, I'm a twin. Yes. Right? So I I've lived my entire life with this 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 sidekick, right? Um and uh, we always joke around that we share our brain, but he has it most of the time. <laughs> and uh, and and you know this 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 guy, my brother, man, um, man, I got so much love and respect and admiration for for this this man and his journey, right? And, and our journey has been similar, and and we've done that journey together a lot a lot of the way. And then times where we 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 did we know we were were separated, whether it be physically or or uh, emotionally uh, from each other, and so that that was a big part of it, you know. Um, you know, I still look at pictures of myself and my brother Tawasu is his name. He goes by Tao, um, and you know, just fond memories of growing up, yeah. you know, and kind of you know. Uh, going out in the backyard and and you know playing, um, you know make believe, uh, you know whatever you know Kikaida was was the uh, um, was the the like the transformers of today, yeah, yeah. right? And now, so, we had a lot of water around. Yeah. Did you surf? Yeah. Did you do any, all that stuff? Well, I grew up a little bit around the water, but we didn't. You know, I was lived in a valley, which you know it's like. Well, it doesn't matter. You're on an island. It's <laughs> like right. it's like it's freaking ten well, minutes bro, to get to the beach, um, uh, and and so we did some camping on the beach. I was never a, really a surfer, um, and it was weird because you know in Hawaii as I was growing up in high school, you know, it's like you're either a, an a, an a jock mm-hmm. or you're a surfer. And the surfer category is like, oh, those guys, they, they're, they're, you know, they're not real athletes and, and they just, they're, they're out there, they smoke weed and, and all this kind of stuff, right? And turns out when I, when I finally did spend some time, uh, in my older years learning how to surf and to realize what athletes what these guys that? really are. Um, but so we grew up around the water and, and, uh, um, you know, probably more than most were, Around the ocean, my my father, who was born in Samoa, raised in Hawaii. Um, you know, we did some fishing in in Hawaii. It's not always a pole fishing. You, there, we do a lot of net fishing. Right. Uh, sometimes you lay a net overnight, and and you just find the current, and you lay the net uh, across the current, and then the fish overnight will get trapped gotcha. in the net, and then in the morning you you go and you you collect the fish. We used a bamboo pole with my grandma, yeah. so that was a lot different yeah. than when I was with up. the with the cork buoy. That's right. The, That's right. Yeah, and uh, so I you know I have fond memories of that growing up, 
Um, and then, you know, got active in, in athletics and, and was a decent athlete. My father was a legendary athlete in Hawaii. Yeah. Uh, great football player, uh, track star, basketball player. Uh, got a, a full ride scholarship to Stanford University, um, and was one of the the first Polynesians to you know go you know across the ocean to to, to college. And and there have been, I mean, that that legacy is is long and storied now as far as uh, athletes that come out of Hawaii or Samoa or Tonga. And end up at at uh, mainland university. Your dad was famous for more than sports. Yeah, right? Come on, yeah. Was... So he was, you know, originally it was was that, and then eventually, um, as my brother and I were were born, and and he was looking at like how he was going to raise these two kids, yeah. um, and driven by you know that necessity to to provide um, a very talented orator and actor, my father, um, and that was fortunate to to get a. A full-time gig with Hawaii Five O, yeah, and uh, you know, for us as kids, like we had no real concept of you know what that necessarily was. You know, we'd be on the set sometimes, and and not realizing what a big deal that was, um, and how cool that was. And um, uh, I still remember there's a story that my mother tells that my dad on an on a on an episode he got shot. And so, you know, my my brother and I were I watching the show, and he got shot, and and we're we were like, in, like what happened? Like Dad just got shot, <laughs> and uh, you know, we were so. My mom tells the story. We were so mad that you know Jack Lord had gotten injured in you know Steve McGarrett's character, yeah. right? Uh, he had gotten injured too and everybody's going to help steve mcgarrett but nobody was helping my dad it was like hey you know my dad is hurt too and so my dad ended up he came through the door and we were so excited that he was alive you know that's awesome, so, <laughs> that awesome. but you know growing up with with some of that which uh, you know it's funny because you know you can relate to this with your children and my children today you know, they they don't see what you do, what I do is that big of a deal That's because right. it's just what dad does. Yeah. yeah. And so we had some sense of that. It's like my dad is just an entertainer. He parlayed that, you know, Hawaii Five O, you know, stint into um, a uh, nightclub Polynesian review show that which which was, you know, very successful in Hawaii for 20 years. So I grew up, you know, in in that time frame with those kind of references. My dad, uh, well, you know, the an entertainer. My mother, very active in raising the two of us, yeah. myself and my brother, uh, very active in the LDS faith. My mom was. We always had youth at our house, yeah. um, and uh, you know, activities and and uh, uh, that kind of thing. And so, born and raised with, uh, you know, I would say a pretty strong LDS faith as the foundation. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's really what Hawaii was like for me. But at that time, T, one of the things that started to emerge out of my uh, just kind of, you know, as we're looking for this identity and yeah. this call, um, and one of the things that, that I can still go back to and, and identify for me was there was almost like a, a sense of or, or a need to to fill a role as my brother was the good twin right and i was the evil twin really yeah from the very beginning like i was treated my 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 father treated us differently and not oh, consciously okay. yeah um but my brother was always doing things right 
and I always had this this almost like a um, like a desire to it's like to those invest, two magnets when you to when investigate you're... yeah the other side yeah and I can still remember from from you know times back in early like church membership my brother was we were both baptized and and him just like almost being like okay at, at the age of eight like I'm just gonna live a, a good life. And I was like, well, what about this stuff over here, yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so, um, you know, and that kind of uh, evolved and, and got, you know, a more prominent, I think. That's interesting because over, over time. as we're talking about the call, right, you're going through your life and, I mean, you and your brother are yeah. basically being raised together. Yeah. Right? And, and in a lot of senses, that means that, you know, most kids will take kind of the same path. Yeah. Um, but you had this polar kind of opposite feeling mm-hmm. that um and, and i guess i'm wondering you said that you were treated differently was that because you had already decided maybe at some point that this is the direction i want to go i don't want to be yeah. this way or what do you think kind of forced when you I, when i look back on it it's it wasn't even i can't look at it as like a conscious decision right, right. it was just like that was my personality mm-hmm. that was all you know kind of the the spirit that 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 I was born kind of with was a little was just different and and understandably now you know as a father I can look back on my dad's experience and and looking at the knucklehead kind of stuff that that I did yeah. you know which we we it's not like my brother like Tao didn't do knucklehead stuff but um I did more knucklehead stuff <laughs> yeah. and and I got in more trouble and then, then it starts to become, you know, this, like, you know, we can look back, you know, when we were raising our kids, and then we almost start to put an expectation, on, oh, yeah, of course you did that, you know, this kind of stupid stuff that we do. Yeah. And so I started to, I think I, I fell a little bit into to that category or that role. Um, I was blessed to have, um, and, and, and my father, you know, came from a very abusive and rough you know, upbringing and a lot of uh, racism yeah. growing up, right? And which was uh, um, maybe um, magnified when when he marries a Caucasian woman from Utah, right? Um, and so, you know, my, my those are all the things. You know, those are some of the things. Not all. Of, those are some of the things that my father is bringing to his you know father experience, yeah. and so. Um, and, and for 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 me, it's like I can understand the the frustration. It's like, man, why why are you gonna make my life so hard? Yeah, <laughs> you know, no, for my you. dad, it's like, yeah. why you like just be like your brother, man? You just don't get in trouble all the time. So there was some of that growing up, and that that became, I think, part of as I reflect on it now. wasn't You know, I couldn't have pinpointed that when I was in right. it. But I can reflect on it now. But, and see but some you of that. found something. Yeah, you found something. Was it was it football? It was or? athletics okay. for me. Yeah, and so the call really was was athletics. And there was a moment where I was, uh, you know, part of it was pursuing this because I enjoyed athletics. I was pretty good um, at you know uh, sports, um, but there was a moment that happened my my freshman year in high school. And I had made the, my brother and I both had made the the freshman team as seventh graders. And my dad really didn't want us to play football. He wanted us to be tennis players. 
and in part because he didn't want us to get hurt. And then he felt, I think part of him felt like, I don't want them to have to live up to my legacy. Right. Um, and so we had forged his name on the permission slip to, to be able to play football. And we made the team. So in our seventh grade year, we made the freshman team. And so that was a, a big deal. And he's like, okay, these kids, these two knuckleheads are going to play football. Um, and, and, and I really wasn't a great player, uh, you know, a lot of hustle, mm-hmm. but not a lot of uh, uh, necessarily talent and even size. You know, at that time I was uh, smaller. Uh, it, it, my build was smaller. And then um, typically if you're, you know, that successful in seventh grade, by the time you get to your freshman year, then you usually will play up to varsity or you play up to junior varsity. And my freshman year, I didn't make the junior varsity team. And so I stayed on the freshman team, which was, for me... Um, Did your a, brother move up? No. He, so he and I were both... We, we both stayed on, on the, the freshman team as freshmen. Okay. And so it was, like, disappointing and a little almost, uh, you know, even embarrassing. It's like, man, you know, I made the, the freshman team as a seventh grade and I can't make the JV team. Um, I know the feeling. But the beautiful thing for me was, so when that happened, they moved me... Or I got moved from receiver. I'd been I always wanted to be, you know, a a uh, a wide receiver. But my freshman year, they needed a running back because the guy that was the running back had had made the the junior varsity team. So they moved me to running back, and all of a sudden, you know, I, I found kind of this thing that I yeah. loved, man. I just loved carrying the ball. Gotcha. And then I had this game, My the way my dad tells this story, I scored five touchdowns in this game. I think it was more like four, maybe three. And But I had this game where, where I just broke out. And I remember coming off the field and my dad was so proud of me. And it was like one of those moments like, ah, oh, this is it. Yeah, you know, this is the moment. This, 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 this is this is where I'm going to find validation. It's my calling. This, yeah, this is my calling. Yeah. and I was, uh, you know, I was a pretty good running back, and and that was, and then so my freshman year, I end up moving to that position, running back, and then my sophomore season, I make the varsity team, and I start on the varsity from my sophomore year to my senior year, and end up, you know, uh, getting recruited by BYU. So that was really for for me that really gave me some focus gotcha. and some identity. Yeah. You know, you know, I can't lie and say that that wasn't a big part of it, man. It, it really became like Amalama Harrington, the yeah. leading rusher in the state uh, in Hawaii, and that that kind of thing. Well, so, we're, we're gonna yeah, we're gonna continue with that because uh, now that we know what you found as your call, yeah, right. We're gonna get into that next part because. Um, Everybody goes through those moments where they have to continue to fight for for what they love and what mm-hmm. they want, and 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 some things happen that are unexpected. So we'll be right back with Lima Harrington. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear-gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor... 
you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. We are back on Thorough Talk. We've got Alema Harrington in the studio with us today, and uh, we just found out what his call was back in the day, growing up in Hawaii and being the bad twin. the evil twin. The evil twin. I can't even relate that word with you, man. Uh, so, so you you get a scholarship yeah. to BYU yeah. to play football, you and your brother. Yeah. And um, talk to me about that. And I know you had some, yeah. you know, we're, we're kind of at that pit moment yeah. in your life where something that you really love uh, is, is you're hit, yeah. busy. well, actually, you're, you're injured, right? right? And so talk to me, take me through that and, and, and where yeah, that let, took you. Let, let, let me set this, this up for, you know, um, and and I think you know from what I described as as my childhood, you, we we get the understanding like I was fairly successful, popular, all of those things. But I always had this nagging feeling that it wasn't real. Hmm. Like I'm just I'm not good enough. Um, and I was always you know wrestling with this this self doubt um, and this feeling of inferiority. Um, and I struggled with that, you know, even with all the success, you know, and I had success in track and field, too. And, and um, you know, even within all of that, there was this sense of this not really real. They don't really like you. You're really not that good. Um, and so when I got recruited by BYU and I was at that time the leading rusher in the state, I remember going on my recruiting trip to to BYU um, met some really great guys and and made the decision committed to to BYU, um, and then when I had committed, then that was a year for for some might have the you know the the perspective as far as years are concerned to remember back in the early eighties eighty three eighty four eighty five the church made a decision and they changed the the length of missions right. for men for young men from two years to a year and a half. So what happened there was, and BYU is always juggling scholarships, right, with right. missionaries in the field. So they had a bunch of guys uh, that came back early from their missions um, because even the guys that were in the field, um, they, were, they were coming home in a year and a half instead of two years. And so they put BYU in, in, a, um, in a scholarship shortage, mm -hmm. and I was one of the guys that they said, you know what? You got to hold off for a year. We'll give you a scholarship next year, and so automatically it's like, see, not good enough, right? Not good enough. Um, and then I came to BYU, so I came as as um, still came to BYU, walked on, um, and um, I remember being at practice, and it was the first time in a long time that I was at practice not running with the first team, 
and like I don't know what your experience was when when you got to North Carolina State or or you know the different moments that we have where um, man are you know for for me my I was really challenged um, as to you know are you really that good yeah and um, it's was, interesting too because because some people and and I was I had those thoughts as yeah. well when I got cut but the other side of it with people is that. Um, listen, I'm, I, I know what, what I love. I know what my passion's about. If I get another opportunity, I'm going to go for it. But yeah. it, seem, it sounds like that you have been struggling yeah. with that kind of identity of not being good enough for yeah. a while. And, and, and that, that really was, you know, I can look back now and, and see the, you know, the, 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 the struggle or what I was wrestling with was just simply that, Alumma, you're just not worthy. You're not good enough. Did did, did, did people know this about you? Did, did you did you talk to people about it at the time? About did you just try to about that that, kind that of, I was struggling. Yeah, oh, no, no, struggling. no, no, no. Nobody knew. And and you know, yeah. For for me, it was putting on this this uh, this show yeah. that like I'm good. Yeah, you know. Uh, even though inside I'm I'm freaking yeah. hurting. I mean I'm dying inside. Yeah. Right. I'm dying inside with this this you know sense of um, like when I got to BYU and I'm at practice and and we're running through drills and one of the coaches tells me okay go over there and grab that that blocking dummy and, and stand. Over. I was like what? Why well, you know yeah. I, I couldn't like for for me I remember coming off the practice field after that. And feeling embarrassed, you know, because part of that, for, T, for you, for guys like that, that are, for us that are in that position, there's a lot of pride associated, Absolutely. like I'm the best. And, Absolutely. And, you know, I, I kind of don't know how to act. You know, I'm going to the training table and I'm, I'm embarrassed. I don't want to talk about practice. And um, it, it was, it was um, just one of those, those moments that, really had me um and like you talked about sometimes you know you, you get that and that motivates you like i'm going to show these guys yeah yeah but i don't really feel like i i i you know i, had, I, I kind of um really s- started to sink at that moment gotcha. and an interesting thing happened at that time um which was really my introduction to alcohol and to painkillers and um my whole time growing up as as a football player and an athlete and and all the bumps and bruises and and injuries that I sustained growing up and there were plenty I had never been prescribed an opiate or a narcotic painkiller and so I'm at BYU my freshman year dealing with all of this insecurity and doubt and um, I have I don't even recall the injury some minor injury and I'm prescribed they tell you okay go see the trainer after after practice i go see the trainer they say okay sign up you can go see the doctor i go see the doctor and the doctor you know evaluates my injury writes me a prescription says go over there and, and we had at byu there was a there was a, a doctor's office and a pharmacy right there in the training room right. so you could take your wow. you know whatever the doctor had had uh had indicated for you um you go over there and, and they would they would fill your prescription right there 
And so I walked out of there. I had a couple of small manila envelopes of, of medication. Um, one was a Percocet, which is a very powerful um, oxycodone right. uh, narcotic painkiller. And the other one was uh, a Soma, which is, is a muscle relaxer, but it's you know more so in the category of a um, you know like in like a volume or something like that. Yeah. And so I didn't know anything about drugs and and or you know painkillers like that. And one of the older players told me, okay, take one of these and take two of these. And I remember I, I took it, and I still remember where I was in John Hall, in Helaman Halls, the, the athletic dorms. I still remember where I was when those chemicals hit my bloodstream, T. And when when it hit me, I was like, whew, amazing. Like all of my insecurity, all of my doubt gone so not just the yeah. physical part of no, it. it because you know really i don't even recall what the injury was so the physical pain couldn't have even right, been right. that significant but the emotional pain and right then man it hit me like wow like this is what has been missing in my life really like you know this this makes me feel complete um and it wasn't immediate but you know, I started to, you know, seek opportunities to be able to have that feeling again. Gotcha. Right. And my freshman year was spent um, on the sidelines. I uh, have a national championship ring, but, um, you know, that, that sense of you don't deserve that. Right. Um, because you didn't play. Um, and, and so I, I struggle sometimes with, like, hey, yeah, national championship. And like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know? Uh, I don't feel a part of that national championship like you do a part of your national championship because gotcha. of how, how how intricate of a part you played in it. But it was still part of of my my journey. Yeah. Um, but I could I, you know, I still I've struggled to to accept that mm-hmm. that I deserve to be yeah. a part of that. So then we're we're yeah. at a really critical part of of this conversation we're having because this is this is the part that. I know that there are a lot of people listening to this either have experienced or they mm. know someone who has been addicted to opioids. Yeah. Um, so you said you remembered that first time. Do you believe that that, that first time, because uh, what I'm hearing a lot of times is it takes a while to become addicted, Yeah. right? But. I mean, the truth is, what is the truth? The truth is, and and I can speak to this from a clinical standpoint as, you know, a guy that has a little bit of education because I have an advanced degree in in substance use disorder, right? Um, And and have a, a license as a substance use disorder counselor. And probably one of the big things that I learned when I was in school, when I went back to school about 10 years ago now, was that uh, there is a a genetic um, link uh, and a predisposition Mm -hmm. and that there there are some people that become addicted the first time. You know, that's a real thing. It's like you you used to be kind of like a fear monger thing. Oh, don't try it. You could get addicted the first time. It's like, come on, man, that's ridiculous. But But there's some truth to that. Right. And so for those that are listening and, and, and wondering, like, well, how do I know if that's the case? I always tell people, look at your family line. Do you have addiction in your family? Um, there's a good chance or a higher chance if you if you do that, you will likely you know have that genetic predisposition uh, uh, for 
um, this disorder. It's a brain disorder that we're dealing right. with. And so the, the thing for me, and probably an important message to, 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 um, to, to share with our, our listeners now is that, you know, when you're looking at a person who is addicted, um, try to, trying to understand that uh, the, the pills, the alcohol, the drugs, the, that's not the problem. The, the, the problem is that the pills and the alcohol and the drugs have become the solution to that person's problem. Right. So if you look at my story specifically, um, when I when that those drugs hit my bloodstream, it's like, here's the answer. Mm -hmm. This is the solution. This is the solution to my feelings of inadequacy and not good enough. Right. And so, um, as I mentioned, it didn't happen overnight. It was a progressive thing, you know, for for me as I was seeking the, the drugs and and I started drinking. Um, and I never thought I was an alcoholic, but I drank like an alcoholic yeah. because the addicted brain, the alcoholic brain, the thing that happens is people who have the addicted brain, their midbrain is the part of the brain that is dysfunctional or damaged. And their midbrain for the alcoholic, when the alcohol hits your system, the midbrain takes over and the midbrain is in charge of survival. Like right. it, that's its role. Right. Our prefrontal cortex, which is what, you know, it it's what separates us from the rest of the animal kingdom is this part. Our prefrontal cortex allows us to to reason. We have values there um, and we make decisions based on those things. But when an alcoholic takes alcohol into their system, the prefrontal cortex shuts down. The midbrain activates and becomes the, the driver. Yeah. And it starts to make the decisions. And um, it, it's not worried about whether or not we're going to eat, which is part of the function for the midbrain is to make sure that, okay, we don't starve to death. Right. Um, instead, the priorities are, are messed up. And it's, I start to think, okay, I need more drugs or I need more alcohol for me to live. So we're still in that pit moment. Yeah. And I wish we had another hour. But um, what was the bottom of the pit for you? What was the rock bottom? The rock bottom was losing, uh, losing my family. And, um, you know, people ask me that question, like, what was your bottom? Like, you know, and my response is like, which one? Mm. Um, because unfortunately for the alcoholic and the addict, and I was having a conversation with a lady yesterday whose, whose husband is uh, um, a, an active alcoholic and addict. And um, it's like, how, how can you possibly stay in that place? Um, but I have, you know, a number of different bottoms that I hit um, and moments where, you know, we refer to in a 12 step uh, uh, environment or uh, within, in that type of uh, program, we call it step one. Step one is is admitting that we're powerless and their lives have become become unmanageable. And there are certain things that happen that help you realize that experiences. And so for me, one of the first bottoms that I hit was when um, I got kicked out of my house. My daughter Taney was maybe two months old, and I lost that family. Now that family came back, and you know through my recovery. But that moment, T, when I remember being kicked out of my house, our apartment, and I walk in the door, and my wife is yelling at me, 
and my daughter is crying in the bassinet in, in the next room. And I am, I'm, you know, having this conscious understanding that this is bad, Alema. Yeah. This is bad, right? And I'm thinking to myself, I have 60 pills stashed behind the washing machine. How am I going to get to that before I get kicked out, before I pack my stuff? How am I going to figure thought, out? That's my thought process, wow. right? And I'm thinking to myself, dude, this is, this is bad, like how, why why would you even think that? Like you you moment. should be thinking how do I fix my family? How do I restore? It? And all I'm thinking about I got sixty pills I got to get them, hmm. and that was a realization of man like that's the you know I'm powerless. Yeah, that was a powerless moment. So you know we we talk about that search moment. Mm maybe during or after that pit moment, but do you ever, I mean, do you ever climb completely out of that pit? I mean, there has to be, I mean, you're here with me yeah. today. You're alive, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So how how does that search moment begin? I mean, how do you get yourself to that p- point yeah. where you're climbing? Yeah. And, you know, for, for me, um, it, it was, it was, finally being in that pit and surrendering to like Alema, you're not going to fix this. Like you can't fix this. Like you've tried not alone. No, not alone. You've tried and you're not, it's just, it's not going to happen. And and I had been through treatment before and I finally got to a treatment center where um, I was really uh, introduced in a full fledged way to the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And there's an old story that is told about a, a guy that falls into a pit and this pit moment, right? Falls into this pit and can't get out. And he's looking up and he sees this light at the, the top opening of this pit and he's yelling for help and people are coming by, clergy members, lawyers, everybody's saying, oh yeah, you know, churches on Sunday, we'll see you then. Oh, here's my business card. Call me when you get out. Somebody should be sued for this. Um, and then, you know, eventually as he's running out of hope, um, he sees a shadow uh, start to come towards him, and boom, this guy ends up jumping into the pit. And the guy looks at you know, looks at him like, "What are you doing, man?" It's like I've been stuck in this pit, and now you jump in this pit, and now we're both stuck in this pit. And the guy looks at him and says, "Yeah, but I've been in this pit before, and mm-hmm. I know the way out. Man. Follow me." Wow. Right? That's that's the moment, yeah. right? Of being able to start to find our way out yeah Yeah. um so we come to the breakthrough moment i mean obviously you're finding your way out of this and you've got listeners that are listening to you right now and and wanting to know okay i've got people around me that are helping me climb out of this pit um what's my next move how can i find that place back to where I don't yeah. I don't have all these things that initially were in my mind I'm not good enough yeah. that can take me back there. Yeah. Is it a continuous battle? It is a continuous journey. Journey. Right? Not a a battle because the battle has been surrendered. The yes. fight. I've gotcha. surrendered the fight. And and I love T how how you've you know really set this up for 
you know, the crescendo of, and, and, and it's, you know, uh, again, just like any other, you know, show or, or performance, there's, there's moments of crescendo, then it goes back That's down right. and then it's building again. And, right. right. And so it's, it's similar to that. But for me, I was in treatment and I came to the realization that, um, I didn't know what I was doing. Like I didn't have a clue. Um, I didn't know how to get out of the problem I was in. And the, 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 the solution that was presented to me was, oh, well, why don't you let God run the show? Hmm. And for me, I was like, oh, cool, because I was born and raised LDS. I got this God thing. Yeah. Right. And I was fortunate <laughs> to have a guy that was my counselor who looked at me and said, well, you might want to consider a different concept or relationship with God because your current one got you here. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Right. So, you know, at that moment, I was I was I had and they call, you know, they call it the gift of desperation. You know, the gift of desperation makes us willing to do anything. Right. And that's where I was. And so today, you know, it's really about maintaining that Mm. willingness, that gift of desperate without having to have the desperation, still be willing to do whatever. So for me, I was introduced to. Uh, and or at least given an opportunity opportunity to rediscover redefine my relationship with my creator with god and and so that was the breakthrough for me and it was a 100% surrender to god's will for me Yes. Right. Not me trying to like counsel God. Right. On like this is what I'd like to do. Um, I'd love you for you to set that up for me. It was like God, what would you have me do? And I, I once I identify that purpose, um, that that I believe is your will for me, then I'm going to move forward in faith, believing that you will provide whatever is necessary for us to win. Yeah. Because God is undefeated. Wow. Right. So that was it for me. And and I had, you know, at that time, I, I kind of wanted to be in the broadcast business, and I thought I could be a star like my dad, and, you know, these different things. And um, God said, I'll decide, like, what you're going to do, right? And so when I was finally able to surrender that to him, the beauty of it was, is like, hey, guess what? I want you to be a broadcaster. <laughs> I want you to work with yeah. Big T, baby. I want you. I want you and Big T to connect. <laughs> Teach him something. Yeah, and so you know that was the beauty for me, and and the path was you know provided for me to achieve some amazing things, yeah. T. Um, and then along the way, you know, the and we don't have time for my entire journey, but the the, the lessons have to be relearned again. Yeah. And so I'm just, but I'm so grateful looking back on that moment where it was like I had the gift of desperation. Um, and I had the gift of de- desperation again in 2002. Uh, and, and have been in that, on that path since. Yeah. And, and it's, it hasn't been a perfect path. It's been a path with, with potholes and ups and downs and learning opportunities. The journey continues. Yeah. yeah. Well, I want to get you back, Alema. We've, uh, we've got some work to do as far as, our jobs in, B, in the NBA goes with the Jazz, but um, this is an important topic. Yeah, and it's an important topic because one, I know and love you, and I know that I know you know the numbers. Yeah, I know you know right here in Utah. 
how many people are struggling. Yeah. Right? I know you know the – you talk about analytics in basketball. Um, I know – based on what we've talked about, that there are so many people at that point right now that need that person to jump down in the pit with yeah. them. And that's what you've been doing yeah. since you've been jumping into the pit with other people yeah. because you've been there. And, and you know, I, 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 I get the opportunity to do group once a week at our due uh, as a counselor. And then I do other, you know, have other duties, marketing and, and community relations, things like that. But, uh, that is by far the the best thing that I get to do is to carry that message, and and you know this and 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 deal with this similarly when we're on the set at a jazz game, and somebody comes up and thanks you for the impact that you had on their lives, and this happens with you all the time um, because you've worked in this community for so many years. But when somebody comes up to me and says, hey, 93 days. I've seen it. I've heard it on the set. I've seen lots of people come up to you yeah, and and hear those same words. And they're different numbers. Yeah, different numbers. <laughs> and, and, you know, just, uh, hey, thank you for, for being willing to, to put yourself out there. And, uh, and sometimes, you know, sometimes it's somebody that I've worked directly with. Yeah. Oftentimes it's not. Yeah. Um, but that to me is like, if we're talking about purpose and fulfillment and feeling alive and feeling, um, you know, erasing that sense of, of not good enough or less than that's that moment. I talk about recovery as being in harmony with the purpose of our creation. Meaning at this moment, I am doing exactly what God created me to do right now. And I know when I'm carrying the message of recovery that regardless of whatever else I was did that day, at least at that moment, T, at that moment when I'm carrying the message, I'm doing exactly what God created me to do at that moment. And I'm in harmony with the purpose of my creation. And that to me is like, oh, thank you, God. Thank you for that. I love you, man. I love you. You're the best. You're the best. <laughs> and on that note, we want to thank uh my friend Alema Harrington for being here on the show on Thorough Talk today. What a powerful show it was. Mm. And um, I'm, we're going to have you back because there's a lot more to talk about. I'm coming about. back, man. I'm lots not, not even waiting about. for the invitation. Like, T, when am I coming back <laughs> on? I'll be there on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all so much for joining us this week on Thorough Talk. Take care of yourselves, and we'll talk to you next week.